Welcome to Brandon Avant. We are delighted to be rejoined by Spencer Case. Uh, Spencer is a real friend of the show. He's been on many times as a guest and as a co-host. And today we're going to be talking about something kind of spicy. We're talking about white male privilege. Uh, Spencer, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Yes. First, I want to say it's a privilege to be here with you, Mark and Jason. My thought experiment is a development of a sort of pedagogical device that is meant to teach people about privilege, about a, a particular conception of privilege that has become popular in academia and in the business world and elsewhere. And this is called a privilege walk. So this is how a privilege walk works. Participants are asked to stand in the middle of a room and then close their eyes. And they're asked a variety of questions about what advantages they have, right? Um, if you are often made to speak on behalf of your race or feel that you're made to speak on behalf of your race, step forward. Uh, um, excuse me, I guess step backward. Uh, if you feel you're often, th that would be, indicate some kind of disadvantage. If you often see people of your race represented as national heroes, things like that, take a step forward. That represents some kind of advantage. Okay, so a series of questions like this are asked. There's no canonical set of questions that are asked. Uh, there are a variety of ways that this is done. It's developed from the work of Peggy McIntosh, and some people attribute this exercise to her, but it really seems that it was others that developed it based on her work, based on her ideas. So the idea is that by the end of the exercise, people are going to open their eyes and they're going to see where they are situated with the more advantaged people in the front of the room and the less advantaged people near the back of the room. And this exercise is supposed to trigger a sort of awareness and awakening, a coming to see in Macintosh's terms. So you are aware of advantages you have that others don't have and how uh, or disadvantages you have that others don't have. And it's supposed to be very eye-opening for the privileged, but the unprivileged are supposed to have uh, already have awareness of this, right? This is not new, supposed to be news to them. So this is supposed to trigger a discussion about privilege in a more um, robustly normative sense. And I'm going to postpone defining what that is because they don't do that in the exercise. They just start with this sort of thing. So here is the variation I want to, to consider. So I want to consider an ultimate privilege walk. And, that, and what would make it an ultimate privilege walk is you imagine everybody is part of it. It's not just the people in the room. And you ask about every conceivable kind of advantage that is a real advantage. And how would discussions about privilege and comparative advantage be different in this total privilege walk variation? So Spencer, I just want to clarify what you mean by a total privilege walk situation. So you're saying everyone in 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 the world, everyone on earth is standing along a line and they're doing this all together. Is that right? That's the first variation, yes. First variation is everyone in the world now alive is now a part of this. And so you'd ask, okay, are you the monarch of a country? King Charles, King Abdullah, they step forward. So you ask every conceivable question that relates to someone's relative advantage. Okay. Then but we'll... then you could even extend it. Okay, go ahead. I was just going to say, and then your second variation? My second variation is to extend it in time. So it's not just everyone alive now, but everyone who, is, who always ha ever has been alive, right? So you've got um, slaves from ancient Rome and Roman emperors uh, alongside CEOs, people in contemporary refugee camps that as well. Okay. And then just imagine how they would be distributed after all of the, the privileges had been asked about. Uh, let's say it's on, on a hundred yard, so like an American football field. They start off at the 50 yard line and you're going to have people in Western countries in, in the frontmost 10 yards clustered there. And then you're going to have many people all the way back, all the way back on the other side of the field. And you could extend it even further and ask, suppose we have, um, I guess, I guess you, this would have to be a, a greater imaginative exercise, but you imagine all sentient beings, where they would all be placed, if you could. Uh, all the animals in factory farms, right? Um, so my 
point in asking this or considering this variation is one, I think when you have just a few people, you can ask leading questions that are guaranteed to get them stratified along certain lines, right? And you can also, if it's everyone in the room is, and presumably this is taking place in a fairly developed country. I don't think they do this in refugee camps. That would be my guess, right? Um, it, over, it allows people to overlook structures. If we're worried about uh, structures that are advantaging some groups over others, what about structures advantaging everyone in the room over everyone else in the room or everyone in modernity ab above everyone in antiquity? What about those structures? So I think if we're going to, uh, the whole point of this is to motivate a discussion of what privileges people have. I think th the more totalistic that thought experiment is, the, the wholer, more complete picture we get. So is the issue that it's arbitrary which questions you ask uh, in terms of what counts as a step forward or step back? And because it's arbitrary, you can select. So there's a selection bias. And it seems like certain types of questions are asked such that you get the answer you want. So you ask questions that generally have a positive answer in the case of white males, but a negative answer in the case of everyone else. And so that is then just stipulatively defined as privilege by the questioner. But if you were to ask different questions, you might have black people stepping forward. Um, I'm curious what the mechanism of looking into the past is doing. I'm curious how that plays into your thinking. What, why do you think that's significant? I think it's significant for this reason. If you were only considering the people who are alive today, and you're looking at disparities that exist between people today, that might overshadow or obscure the fact that people who are alive today generally have it a lot better than people who were alive hundreds of years ago. And that's highly significant, right? It's highly significant. Because if you just look like look at these inequities today, tear down the system, where, is, where else have people been? What else has the system been like? So I think by just not having those, that comparison available by restricting the participants in this way, gives us a very constrained idea about um, how drastically society should be reformed. Yeah, I think there's an enormous amount of power in the iterations of the experiment because I think you show that you could cherry pick the way that you run it to get a certain kind of result that might lead people to think that certain groups are heavily advantaged over other groups. And I think once you expand the circle in the way that you have, you'd find quite a lot of variation. You'd find that it uh, doesn't track that certain racial groups always do better. I think you'd find the most privileged group is... Uh, the youngest group, in other words, those who were born more recently, uh, that having access to um, all the resources that we have in modernity now uh, is just an embarrassment of riches in comparison to what our grandparents grew up with, their grandparents grew up with. Um, the access to literature, to, to resources, to all the delights that we have in the modern day, um, you're very well off because of that. I think the other thing that people would probably find is that where in the world you're born, would make quite a difference. Uh, that it wouldn't necessarily be about your race, um, but about the country that you live in. So if you live in a country which does very well on, let's say, the Fraser Freedom Index, um, you could be one of the poorer people in that country and be better off than someone who was uh, relatively rich in another country which had low levels of freedom. Um, so you'd much rather be... Uh, poor in America than middle class in Somalia. Um, and that's going to have to do with the political institutions that are at play. I think the advantage of your experiment is to partially think about what are the things that matter to us? What is that objective list of things that we can talk about as being privileges in the neutral sense? In other words, everybody would think this was desirable. Um, and then you could think about disadvantages. Everybody would agree this was a bad thing. And then when you had the full data set, you'd probably find that the stuff that's doing the work uh, tracks all these other things, as you say, like where you're born, um, what the 
institutional structures look like where you are, uh, what country you're in. Um, I'm not saying that race and sex would have no role. It's pretty clear to me that uh, if you're born as a black South African during apartheid, uh, things are much worse for you uh, than if you're born post-apartheid. Um, and so you can have a structurally racist society at various points in time, and it can shift. Um, I think as well the danger about lumping groups together is that we want to say that white people have always had this stuff or black people have always been downtrodden in this way. And once you take into account time, you'd see that those things really do uh, depend on time and do depend on where we do the look. Uh, so I think that's a very clever exercise. Can I make one further point about youth? This is a point that Deidre McCloskey made, which is that when you think about the top 1% or the richest people in the world, a variable people often don't control for is age, right? Um, if you, The richest people are likely to be the oldest people because they've had the greatest time to accumulate wealth. So here's a thought experiment. Would you rather be like Warren Buffett or some billionaire in his 80s? Or would you rather be incredibly poor and 18 years old? Um, I think probably I'd rather be the 18-year-old in almost all circumstances. Not all circumstances. I mean, there might be some situations that are so horrible that the rich 80-year-old seems preferable. But in terms of who has the most advantages right now, I think if you don't take youth into account, you're missing a huge part of the picture. You know, um, How many more years do you have left to live is a massive advantage. So this raises a different issue, which I was thinking about as you were giving the privilege war case, is we're assuming all of these factors are equally weighted. So with each question that you ask that you're supposed to take a step forward, if your answer is yes, we're assuming it's the same length step. And at the end, you compare everyone's total distance. But it seems like something like being very old or very sick um, are very... Um, are very large steps backwards, whereas perhaps um, being able to drive home without the worry of the police pulling you over is a smaller step backwards. Without the worry, it would be a smaller step forwards. It seems like there are difference in weightings here, which are ignored by the thought experiment. This, I think, is a huge problem for the original exercise because they can't apportion one of one of the things that is usually mentioned is I can easily find um, bandages like band aids that are my skin tone or something close to it, and white people would take a step forward and uh, darker skin folks would take a step back. Um, until very recently, that was true. They uh, recently I've learned that there's there've been a, a new line of products that are trying to correct for this. It's a fair question to ask why it took so long for them to be developed when there was clearly some consumer demand about this. But yeah, it seems like that is a minor annoyance, but uh, that some of these would um, privilege walk exercise prompts also say, take a step forward if you have had two parents in your household growing up, the whole time you were growing up. And it's that's way more important than the color of the Band-Aids that you, you have access to. Yeah, I agree that to, to really do this properly, you'd need to have a variation where it was proportioned to the significance of the advantage or the disadvantage. Yeah, that seems very important that when you care about goods, um, the extent of the good really matters. And it seems like you could set things up in a way that would create this huge distortion um, by asking a lot of questions that will give you one step, but actually aren't that important. Um, in South Africa, most people are black. Um, and um, Band-Aids that match a black skin tone uh, have been put on the market. And for whatever reason, they actually don't do particularly well. Um, there isn't the same kind of consumer demand that you'd expect. Um, and it might be that a small number of people see it as a huge insult that you would describe Band-Aids as flesh-toned and only have them in lighter skin shades. But consumers don't seem that bothered by it. Um, Maybe there's other methods like transparent band-aids that are going to show whatever your underlying flesh tone is, and that sort of usurps the category and has been around for a while. But uh, yeah, in a way, the wonder of markets is that they uh, will solve a lot of problems. Uh, if there really is a genuine interest in solving something, 
someone wants to make money out of it and uh, the lust for money is often going to trump someone's racist desires. Um, I wonder about some questions sound like they'd be complicated to answer. So if the question is something like, is my race well represented in the media? It seems to depend, right? So if you're talking about, let's say, the Grammys, um, there are a large number of African-American artists who seem very well represented in that category. If you're talking about the NBA, very much. Um, maybe if you're talking about, um, I don't know, hockey players, when are you supposed to take the step forward? Uh, and what do I do if I'm a white Jew? Sure, there's people who are white who are represented in Hollywood. Um, and I could say, great, I feel like all these people stand as, as my race champions and I'm just delighted whenever I see them. But if a whole bunch of them aren't Jews, does it count? Uh, can we? Wh why make white the category? I imagine that there's certain people of Irish descent or German descent or Italian descent who aren't particularly enthralled by seeing people who just happen to have the same amount of melanin in their skins prospering. But they might go, yeah, there's this Irish guy. That's amazing. Like, really proud of this guy for being Irish. Uh, and I imagine that's a similar thing that goes on with black people. So in North America, there's this claim that there are African-Americans. But there's clearly an enormous amount of variety. So you've got people from the Caribbean. You've got people who are descendants of slaves from West Africa. You've got modern Nigerians. In South Africa, you have an enormous number of uh different tribes. So there's causes, there's vendors, there's Sutus, there's Swanas, and they're all not necessarily cheering each other on, right? They might feel some vicarious pride because vendors are suddenly doing well, but the Zulus go, oh, it's not one of us. Uh, so again, like how you do the gerrymandering and how you ask your questions seems to matter. And I also wonder how good is it for you as an individual if someone who happens to share some particular trait that you have prospers? Don't we want to know whether you're prospering? Okay, this is the point where I would like to introduce my definition of privilege. I've been talking about advantages, and I guess privilege in a kind of loose sense, but there is this sense in which it's used that has been inspired by the work of Peggy McIntosh, and this is an amalgamation of closely related definitions, but they're pretty close. The sense in which privilege is often used is something like the following. Unearned advantages, or sometimes un undeserved entitlements, uh, that are systematically conferred on the basis of group identity, which is usually invisible to those who have it and visible to those who don't. So that is so. Once the, the participants in this exercise are sorted out, individually sorted out, they're supposed to notice patterns of a kind that the men are going to be more in the front and white people are going to be more in the front and uh, women and non-whites are going to be further back. And this is supposed to get a discussion going that's supposed to get us to this concept of privilege, right? That has been enormously influential. Um, Macintosh is mostly known for an article called um, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And that article has been cited over 7,000 times. And there are other variations of this that she's written that have, have also been cited thousands of times. Uh, to give you some sense of how important that is, Mike Humer has written, I think, 10 books and 70 articles, and he's been cited 6,000 times. But this one variation of this one article of Macintosh's has been cited 7,000 times. And she also has trained activists in her National Seed Project, and she tends to be cited in a very deferential way, as Macintosh has shown us in this kind of stuff. And then there are also these pedagogical exercises that are put in exercises like the privilege walk that are put into place in by businesses and, and by universities and things. This has been incredibly influential. Um, and the central idea, a central idea of this is that it is something that is a group advantage that is conferred by society. And I've got a couple of questions about that as one is if you really did the ultimate privilege walk, if you really asked all the questions would this still seem like a, a group thing? Would, would we make any inference to um, strong group stratification here? Or would it be like an individual thing? We could talk about individuals being more privileged than others. Um, that's one way we could go. And the other question I have, and uh, Jason, I think this would be of interest to you. I've always wondered, what does it mean for something to be conferred by society? I feel like that's a kind of a metaphor that's taking the place of a satisfying causal explanation. 
Yeah, so Spencer, you're absolutely right. It'd be weird, does society have a hand? And then this hand reaches out and drops in your lap a certain advantage. It's weird. It must be a metaphor, right? Um, so the idea, I think, the metaphor I'm guessing is something like um, there's certain classes of people with certain characteristics who are more likely to inherit benefits from their parents than other classes of people, or there's certain classes of people who tend to be treated better by people in their society than other classes of people because of generalized attitudes um, in that society. So white males may be treated better in the workplace than people in other social groups. I think that's the claim. Uh, the reason why, for listeners, why you're saying I'd be interested in this is because I don't believe in the existence of social groups. So I don't believe in the existence of a society. I also don't believe in the existence of white people or males as a social group. I do, of course, believe that there are certain people with lighter skin tones than others, and I believe that we might even have attitudes towards them, although I don't think those attitudes are consistent in the way people like Macintosh think they are. I think there's something interesting in the definition of, um, of privilege that you gave, which is it suggests unfalsifiability. So you talked about how the people within the group who have privilege cannot see it, and the people outside of that group can. And that opens up the possibility for unfalsifiability because anyone at any point can say, look, you're privileged. And that person can say, hold on, I'm not. And they'd say, of course you'd say that. You'd say that because by definition, your privilege involves an invisibility of that feature to yourself. And the privileged person could point back to the person who raised the claim in the first place and say, but hold on, you're privileged. And they'd say, no, I'm not. And that seems... Con perfectly consistent with the definition, but that it raises this problem of unfalsifiability. And in philosophy and science, we want to make claims that are falsifiable, that we can verify, and we can stipulate the conditions under which that claim would definitely be false, so that we can check whether that those conditions have arisen. We can test it. It seems like the claim is untestable and unfalsifiable, and that's a big problem. Yeah, that is one issue. One, one strange thing, it, though, is uh, Macintosh is herself white. And she begins, her early article was just called, it was called, uh, I think, White Privilege and Male Privilege, or maybe I'm getting the two um, swapped around. But she, in that article, she gives a list of 40 things. It's just her sitting and thinking, these are things that seem to me to be privileges that I have because I'm white. And yet, she starts out by saying that they're usually invisible to white people. They're usually invisible to the privileged. But she has this special ability to see what the rest of us can't see. Um, she has the vision thing. Uh, so th there's something odd about that. So you can see this, but we can't. And that must be because we aren't as enlightened as you. So that's a bit troubling. I have been to one... Um, it was American Association of Philosophy Teachers session at the APA in, in 2018, where there was a there was somebody who was interested in privilege who was describing how she would have her non-white students talk and basically encourage them to complain about the white students. And as the white students sat silent, and she's, I think it's good for them not to feel completely comfortable. And I thought, man, I was the only one who challenged her on that. Is that a good is that a good thing? It seems like you're happy that you're making these students feel uncomfortable based on race. And she's like, they get to be comfortable all the time. They're so this is educational for them. And I just thought, yeah, I suppose you could um you could think of it that way, but it's weird to think that the bias goes in just one direction. That's the thing that I think is strange. The thing that um the unprivileged, they they are the ones who, who see the truth. And that has been taken in a very simplistic way, culturally. The Chicago Theological Seminary some years ago had this white privilege glasses video, which you should look, look up because I think it typifies this very thing where um, there's this, this white man who puts on these, these glasses that allow him to see the things that a black person sees, and his eyes are just opened. And um, I don't remember all the different things that he sees, 
But I do remember at one point he was looking at a street crossing between um, Jefferson and Washington, names of two American presidents, unfortunately, slave owners. And he put them on and they both, the street sign just said slave owner now. And I thought, is that really how black people see it? Is there a black lens that you can just put on and just see societal truth? Or is it that we've got different groups and they have different biases and uh, we should hear everybody out and maybe I should pass the mic, but then it should be passed back to me. But is this very uh, one-sided thing? Perhaps it could be falsified if the minority said, we just don't see it. We just don't see what you're talking about. Yeah. So I wonder if these things become unfalsifiable in another way, which is that if you are someone like Thomas Sowell, who's black, and you call foul, and you say, hold on a second, uh, I just don't buy any of this white privilege stuff. They go, oh, you're not, uh, you're not really black, Thomas, uh, because a real black person, a true Scotsman, uh, would understand the system that we put in place, um, and you're not one of us. Uh, so... There's a sort of the Robin DiAngelo sort of thing where people say, well, it's a white person, you're necessarily racist. And you go, but I'm not a racist. Well, that's what a white person would say. Of course, they wouldn't acknowledge that you're racism. So you first got to confess your sins before Robin. Uh, and then once you've done that, then we can have the path to salvation. I also wonder about thinking about the way you set up the, the experiment is that you we check your privilege at a particular point in time and place in time. Um one way to find out how useful your white privileges is to go and travel. Go and find out whether all the nations of the world go, oh, you're white. Uh, we're going to just afford you all these privileges in our society. Uh, even though you don't speak our language, even though you don't know our customs, uh, uh, you might be treated quite poorly uh, because of the fact that you're an outsider um, when you go off to Uganda or North Korea. Um, and you might find the reverse, that uh, if you're a North Korean who comes to America, and in North Korea, you're incredibly disadvantaged. Uh, you might be seen as an exotic wonder if you were to come to New York. And people would say, wow, I want to hear about your experiences. You're a special person. So your circumstances could change when we put you in a different location. Uh, that seems very different from the claim that your privilege follows you around everywhere and uh, you're stuck with it. I, One of the most neglected books that strikes me as a very powerful, important book, is David Benatar's Second Sex. Benatar. Yes. I didn't even need to say it. You know what I was talking about. Uh, and there's a really interesting claim because what Benatar does, he says there really could be a systemic disadvantage on the grounds of sex. Uh, and he says, without a doubt, women have been subject to it for a long time, and it's really bad. But also it turns out that men get it too. And let me give you a couple of examples. So... There's an expectation in some countries that if you're a man, you will be conscripted into battle, whereas if you're a woman, you won't be. And you might very well die in that battle. Millions of men died uh, in World War I and World War II. Uh, women were not conscripted into battle. Um, your, the number of people in prison who are male, comparison to female, about uh, 9 out of 10 are male. Uh, your chances of getting a more severe sentence for the same crime, much higher if you're male. Um, that your chances of getting the same access to privacy are uh, much, much lower. So there's an expectation, ah, men don't mind showering together, whereas women should get individual showers. Um, there's a whole range of ways in which men are treated worse. Uh, and there's also a sense in which to correct for the wrongs of the past, for example, it was the case that many Ivy League universities prohibited women from attending, that when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was uh, interviewing for a spot in law school, they said, but you're going to deprive a man of this. Uh, how can we give it to you? Because everybody knows that women aren't serious and you're just going to go and have kids and not practice law. Um, obviously, Betty Ginsburg had an enormous impact on the American Supreme Court and the law in America. Um, but now what you find is that men are underrepresented at universities, uh, that if you go and look at the top rankings and they'll show you the ratio of men to women, uh, women tend to outstrip men. Um, and this has its own ramifications for women too, that it's much harder to find um, a mate uh, when your dating pool has been narrowed, when there are so few men who have college degrees and it causes some level of misery for them, but also causes misery for those men who don't get the chance to go and study. Um, so I wonder what you think about that. So if there are certain kinds of institutional structures that you can put in place, laws or uh, cultures that really do go and benefit one sex over the other, one race over the other, 
do those things amount to privileges? Yeah, I definitely think they do. But I want to note that this is not a zero-sum game. Women can face a lot of problems and a lot of sexism and um, abusive boyfriends and things like that. And uh, they certainly bear the burden biologically of reproducing the species that falls on women. So I don't want to minimize the problems that women face, but I don't like the idea of thinking of men as an advantaged class or something because they don't have those disadvantages because they've got a bunch of others. Men die younger. That's partly biological, I think, but it's also because they tend to work harder jobs. They're more likely to be murdered, all sorts of social facts. If you see a woman slapping a man in a restaurant, you might think, what did that asshole do? He must have really had it coming. I don't think it would be viewed the same way if a man slapped a woman under similar circumstances. So there are all these things you can point to. Um, And so I guess the question that this leads us to is, do we want to revise the concept of privilege? Uh, Is there a core here? Um, I do think that the zero-sum game part of it, that your man, you need to listen to those who've been worse off through most of history. I do think that lacks a certain um, sensitivity to the present. I think there's a strange deference to what the power structures have been that blinds people to the way things are changing. And sometimes the very emphasis on privilege introduces new sorts of privileges. Like you have the what John McWhorter called the privilege of calling out privilege. So strangely enough, the more privileged you are, the, the less of that privilege you have. It seems like privilege correctly defined, given the discussion that the two of you have had, it, it needs to include placeholders next to it. So it's a relational term with variables. So someone is privileged insofar as they, so that'll be the first variable, that person, A, is advantaged relative to another person, so they're more advantaged than another person, B, so there's two terms so far, in a certain context, C, as Mark was saying, in certain contexts, your whiteness might help you, in certain contexts, it might really not. My point is just that it's a relational concept. It seems like a person doesn't have privilege per se in an absolute term where you can just quantify that, and it's not a one or zero or even by degree, seems like it's highly specific to context. Um, And given that kind of, it derails the notion that a person is privileged, and it derails the notion that privilege is an overriding feature, given that it's so specific in a certain context with regard to a certain feature, with regard to a certain time in a certain area. So I guess what I want to know is, does privilege in this revised sense Do you see it as a causal force that can usefully explain something about society, or does it just describe the way other forces have organized things? That's a really good question, but I think the answer I'm going to give is a little dissatisfying, but I think it it still pushes the point, which is that even if it has causal force, it's going to have very little because it describes such a niche element of your existence, such a tiny property of your being. When people say that he's a white male, what they're trying to say is that comes with that pronunciation, with that description of the person, comes all this privilege. It's like a train that just bashes through, has this massive causal force. It changes his whole life. It puts him at a huge advantage. What I'm suggesting is it it, it has slight causal efficacy, if it has any at all. It has slight causal efficacy in highly specific circumstances. It doesn't come with a huge barrage of, uh, it's not highly laden. It has tiny causal efficacy. And the claim made on the other side of this argument is the opposite, that it comes with enormous um, with enormous valence and enormous causal efficacy. So it almost sounds like kind of social particularism, right? Like whether uh, being white is an advantage, it would count... Um, depending on how these other variables are filled out, but you just couldn't say anything about it on its own. I guess an alternative way would be something intermediate, which would be like Ross's prima facie duties, right? So like fidelity, keeping a promise, or that an action would be beneficent. Like each of these things uh, counts in favor of it or counts in favor of it in every circumstance, but it is frequently outweighed by something else. 
So you could think of privilege like that, like being white is, there are a number of different metaphors used. It's a tailwind that you have. It's a head start in a race. It's a secret bank account. It's a backpack full of stuff. Um, it's just that other things constantly swamp that. That would be one way of thinking of it. Another way of thinking of it would be it's just radically particularistic. It just depends on the individual and the circumstances. And you can't really infer much of anything about the fact that a person is white or that a person is male. I think that might be even stronger than where I would go. So I know one of the critiques of Macintosh's work is that she's thinking of a very particular kind of upbringing when she talks about white people. So I think her own upbringing was a very wealthy uh, New England upbringing. And so when she gives those examples, that tends to match people in her neighborhood. But it doesn't match the lives of Appalachians, uh, who might have grown up with a single parent, might grow up in a community where there's a widespread drug addiction, where people uh, die from uh, from the opioid crisis, uh, that they're not particularly well off. Um, and they happen to have the same amount of melanin. Um, but to say those Appalachians are just as interchangeable with the people that grew up on Long Island uh, strikes me as rather ignorant. I uh, met an Irish guy recently who was out in South Africa, and he said to me, you white South Africans don't know how to use uh, an ironing board because you all had black mates. And I said, uh, you do know that 300,000 white people live in shantytowns. Um, you know, where <laughs> they might not know how to use an ironing board because they can't afford one. Um, and he was shocked by this. And then I said to him, you're Irish, right? Uh, where in Ireland did you grow up? He says, Northern Ireland. I said, were you Catholic or Protestant? He says, no, I'm a Protestant. So you know that being a Protestant living in Northern Ireland, uh, you have an enormous benefit over your Catholic brothers. Um, and so that little subtle detail matters for nothing in America or South Africa, whether you're Catholic or Protestant. But in that little patch of Ireland, it matters everything. Um, and so there's this just enormous danger when we wipe people with the same brush. I wonder about something else, though. It seems that the purpose of this exercise, when you run it, is to uh, inculcate some kind of uh, awakening, as you say, in people where they go, oh, my goodness, I'm so privileged. I've gotten all this stuff. And these other people of these other races or sexes, they're not. And you're supposed to then what? Relinquish your privileges or be really nice to them. Doesn't it create some other kind of problem? Which is that if you're a certain kind of person, you say, I guess I am privileged. I guess I am better than these mongrels. This is fantastic. Um, I feel wonderful about myself, unlike all these other people who are untermenschen. Uh, or you create this reverse hierarchy uh, where those that are on the other side of the track have walked um, backwards, we go, they're the incredible people. If we just take the Ku Klux Klan pyramid and we do that to it, we now know who the best people are in society. It's the people who took a certain number of steps backward versus the other people. And again, it seems like we're making the same mistake that the Klansmen are making, which is judging people on these very superficial criteria and saying these people are saints and these people are sinners. As for the first point, I don't think that is likely to be a big concern, um, I, maybe in virtue of the group dynamics that would be operating when this exercise is being performed. However, I have had this thought that like Robin D'Angelo's white privilege is very much influenced by Peggy McIntosh. She says near the beginning that it's actually preferable to be an open racist than to be a sort of closeted um, racist, like a shallow liberal of sorts who isn't fully committed to um, renouncing white privilege and that sort of thing and fully committed to anti-racism as D'Angelo conceives it because she, she just thinks it's more honest. And I thought reading this book... Um, I, a few years ago, I thought, gee, I could definitely imagine someone saying, if my choices are between this kind of um, self-renunciation, and it really is quite extreme, what you find in, in D'Angelo's books, um, but if it's the choice between that and hardcore old school racism, some people are going to find the latter preferable. Um, but I think, as you say, the... There is a kind of um, ritualistic element to some of this. So this is a quote I begin another essay I wrote on this from the Ethics Left and Right book from a philosopher named Andrew Pierce, who is a supporter of privilege, a supporter of this stuff, this whole, um, not a supporter of privilege, but of 
the privilege pedagogy and, and that sort of thing. This is what he says. The conceptual framework of white privilege has been incredibly influential, not just on contemporary scholarship on race, but perhaps even more so on anti-racist activism and on the cottage industry of diversity training and education. For many programs, political and institutional, the acknowledgement of privilege serves as a kind of therapeutic starting point, a confessional precondition akin to admitting you have a problem in various 12-step enterprises. I do not mean this glibly. That's from a supporter of the um, this way, this framework of thinking about advantage and, and not a critic. And it's... I'm connecting this quote now with a book I'm reading by uh, Jesse Singal called The Quick Fix. It's all about these psychological interventions that are supposed to make a big difference to some social problem that turn out to be not very backed by the evidence, but are trumped up by particular researchers and then exaggerated by the media. Um, Counter evidence is ignored. And little bits of confirming evidence are blown out of proportion. And all these expensive and useless interventions are made. One of them he mentions that I didn't know about was that positive psychology suggested these interventions, first for youth depression in, um, for kids in schools. And then it was adopted to treat uh, trauma by the army without very much evidence at all that it could, um, even the first thing it was good for, that it would... Uh, that it could really do that and less that it could generalize to, to trauma. Okay. And uh, problems with implicit associations is another one he talks about. So I'm, as I'm rereading this stuff on privilege, I'm thinking this is another quick fix is what this is. The reason this became so popular and has been cited so much is there's a, there, there is a seed. I've been trashing this whole literature, but, Let's acknowledge there's a kernel of truth here. It's true that some people are born with a lot better cards than others. And there does seem to be something unfair about that. And it is a benevolent sort of sentiment to want to try to help people who are worse off and to acknowledge the things that you have. Um, And so you can see how that sort of good intention could lead people to reach for interventions, um, all of this sort of privilege training, things like the privilege walk and um, everybody. Oh, this is another one Macintosh comes up with. Uh, she just ha- have everybody in the class just freely speak for one minute. She call- And then she calls that uh, the, uh, the autocratic administration of time in the service of the democratic distribution of time. Okay, whatever. So all these things like this are, I think, supposed to be appealing quick fixes that that companies and institutions can glom onto to say, yes, we're doing something. We're doing something. So there's, there's a lot of questions to ask um, about whether we should assume, um, let's just assume that this is correct. So let's just assume that there are significant social differences between white males and everyone else or white people and everyone else and males and females. Let's just assume those differences for a moment. There's interesting questions to ask around the implications of that. So what are the implications about the moral status of white people or males or white males? A lot of people believe that if you are privileged, you're born in original sin in a way. So Macintosh has conferred upon you not an advantage, (laughs) but now a moral disadvantage. Um, and, and then there's further questions to ask, which is, suppose it is the case that you have these advantages. Putting aside the moral question, why is it the case that it's wrong to have an advantage, assuming there is one? And that's up for debate. But assuming there is an advantage associated with being a white male, for example, why is that bad? Now, here you get to something that I think it was Michael Monaghan called the boundary problem which is how you define the boundaries of privilege. Uh, If I'm just not um, being harassed by the police all the time, and black people are, let's say that's true, um, that is, I guess, unearned. Uh, It would be weird to call it undeserved, though. And this is one way that Macintosh has been criticized by others. It seems like everyone should have what I have, right? 
everyone should have what I have in this case. So if the sense of privilege that we intend is that it's something that you ought, I ought not have, then lots of these advantages are going to turn out not to be privileges because everybody should be in a safe neighborhood and everybody should be free from being harassed by the police. And, and yeah, so this is something that critics of, of Macintosh have raised. It seems almost like white men are not responsible for having done something wrong, but society is then responsible for not conferring that advantage that everyone else deserves. Um, and yet, the um, if that's the case, then how does that mesh with this very individualistic confessional that Andrew Pierce describes, or this very individualistic opening your eyes and looking around um, at where you are in relation to the others in the privilege walk? Uh, if it's society that did this, um, yeah, you could ask, what's the point of that? I, I guess the answer is supposed to be something like, um, by being aware of your privilege, you can help to undermine the structures that that caused it. But I'm not at all sure that that that's true. Um, I think just because even if you do genuinely notice you're better off than someone, that doesn't. It might. It, it might. But it's a, a leap in logic to think that it, it would necessarily. So it's interesting to note that the American Supreme Court has um, placed this ban on uh, race-based admissions for publicly funded universities like Harvard and UNC. But that what it's done is allow students in their student essays to describe their personal circumstances. And those personal circumstances could include that they were subject to racial abuse and that there was something that they overcame or was a challenge in their life and makes them an interesting character that you want to admit to university. But the idea is that we're not going to pretend that all people who happen to be of a particular race uh, are privileged or not privileged. What we're going to do is some kind of uh, fine-grained assessment based on the particular individuals who write to us, and we'll find out if we care about something like diversity, people who've gone through the hardship of racial discrimination or the hardship of, let's say, losing a mother at a young age or the hardship of um, having uh, fought in a war uh, and being a veteran. Those are things we'll take into account when we admit people. Um, so do you think that the Supreme Court is moving in the right direction and pushing back against the privilege narrative? I think it's a move in the right direction. I do worry about the abuse of this one passage, whether anyone can claim that it can just say as a whatever, as a way of signaling, okay, give me some kind of preference. Um, I hope that doesn't happen to too great of an extent. Uh, we'll see. But I do have the worry too of like when you are at the front of the line in the privilege walk, it's like you're exposed in a certain way. And I have read um, defenses of this notion of privilege that say, oh no, we're not shaming whites. We're not saying that they don't um, have the things, they, they don't merit their place or whatever. I, but I think, no, if you really look at this, you have to be saying that. You have to be saying, I have something that I don't deserve. What is it? How much of my money in my bank account was I shouldn't have or something like that? Um, whereas if you think of, if you are further back, it's, you can think of, aha, I have overcome more. Um, my achievements mean more. And I think there's an encouragement of uh, there going on there for people to think of themselves as being more on the unprivileged side, because that it's more complimentary. It says more about your character. It says you're underrated rather than overrated. And this is another thing that I worry about. It's psychological consequences. Um, instead of feeling good about, hey, I've got, um, look at this great life my parents have made for me. Um, my dad worked really hard to make sure I could get into that private school. I should be grateful for that. It's this um, something you have to own and acknowledge that's like a confessional. And then the flip side of that is, it's something you get to claim as, a, as having a certain standing to call out others for things they didn't earn. Um, and do we really want people to identify with the worst things that have happened to them? So I'm trying to think how your opponent would respond. The opponent of all of us, apparently, would respond. Um, so it would be something like this. 
you're glossing over massive inequalities. There are just these huge inequalities in society. And yes, it's true that not every white male has these advantages and not everyone who's not a white male lacks these advantages. But if you look at the probabilities, if you look at the likelihood of you having these advantages as a white male versus as a black female, for example, you have a much higher chance of experiencing these objectively better circumstances. And all of this discussion is trying to minimize that fact. How would you respond? The black female has a a longer life expectancy than the white male, according to the CDC figures. So that seems important. Um, And then also, I just want to know what else is being controlled for? Uh, What if, how much of this supposed white privilege is um, two-parent household privilege, right? Because what we're given is just a set of facts about where these different groups stand um, with respect to something. And then said, see, society conferred this on this group and this on the other group, abstracting away all sorts of individual decisions, out-of-wedlock birth rates, decisions about crime. Okay, and then you could say something prompted those decisions. Social forces prompted those decisions. And to that, I want to say, not all of those social forces are attributable to racism, right? Unless you want to say absolutely every problem that affects women is sexism and absolutely every problem that affects um, black people is some manifestation of of racism. There, it just seems absurd to think that there's just one problem for any of these groups. But you, when you think of the total situation of a group being a, con, um, conferred upon them by society, it has this weird effect that um, it's as though there was society reached into the bag of goods and just handed them out to every to everyone uh, on an arbitrary basis. And you're not looking at individual decisions. You're not looking at particular cultures. You're not looking at um, everything smaller than the societal level that might explain those things. So one of the questions that I've uh, often asked people um, who really buy into the privilege narrative is I say, let's assume that you got fired um, because most people who buy into the privilege narrative have quite a nice job. Um, and I say, you had to go and reapply for a job, maybe in academia um, or in my profession in law. And you could pick um, the categories on the application form as to what you are. Would you tick uh, straight white male? Uh, or do you think you'd get some advantage from being a a gay, black, trans, Latino woman. Um, And in South Africa, um, where the Bar Association has said that they've taken enormous efforts to limit the number of white males who can become uh, barristers, so much so that out of 100 um, this year, they admitted zero. Um, It seems that being a white male is not a very useful thing. Uh, in that career setting. And I'd imagine that uh, in academia, those things might follow. Um, And I wonder which of the groups that really do have the privilege and if you could freely select, and I think in some places you can quite freely uh, shift. Um, One of the bits of advice that I've given to people is that um, they should do some soul searching and uh, recognize that their gender identity doesn't match um, the sex that was assigned at birth, um, or that their sexual orientation uh, has changed overnight. Uh, and um, this may very well improve their prospects of being employed. No, I think that's true. And I think this is where people are going to lean into, yeah, but you have to look at the whole history. You can't look at, you can't look at where things are right now. You have to look at the, the history. Um, and I've been thinking about this. Um, one worry I have about white privilege is consider anti-Semitism, right? Society, so you can imagine somebody saying society has conferred upon Jewish people all this wealth and all this influence and stuff. And that strikes people rightly as a form of bigotry and it's rejected. And I think what um, people who are concerned about privilege would say is, look, but they have a whole history of being oppressed that white people don't have qua white people. And that's true. But I just don't think that it's all that important because you could imagine this counterfactual. You could imagine um, a counterfactual history in which the Holocaust didn't happen. Uh, 
hypothetically, okay? Don't edit that and just and, and <laughs> say I said it didn't happen, okay? And the pogroms didn't happen, and there wasn't this entire history of Europe, uh, in Europe and, and in the Islamic world of, of anti-Semitism, but it just started popping up in the 2020s for the first time ever. Um, I think we would still want to condemn it as bigotry. Um, I don't think that the past of racism really says a lot about who is present or who is privileged in the present. Uh, if you just look at what the comparative power situation is. And so what you're saying in South Africa, it might be true that the history vastly favors um, white people. But at this moment, in this context, white people are not privileged. Yeah, a good question uh, to ask is, imagine this podcast was differently titled, and it went on about, let's say, the problems with black men. Um, how would that be received? These are the problems with black men. Um, I imagine this podcast would be thoroughly shut down. Um, maybe YouTube is even going to just take that snippet of what I just said out of context and say that this is a racist podcast, but you could absolutely do a podcast on the problems with white men. And what does that say about privilege in society today? What does that say about which group, uh, which groups are protected? Yeah, this is, this has bothered me a great deal about, I just think white Americans, black Americans, we should think of we, th we should think of each other as being fellow citizens, but and along with that, we should be playing the same dialectical rules. Um, I would be okay with a set of dialectical rules according to which it's okay to criticize. Um, you can say things that are wrong about us uh, because a lot of things are, but we also can point out some things that seem problematic and it could be, I don't know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be considered fighting words or it wouldn't get anybody's career ruined or something like that. Or we could have a situation in which it's just, we everybody understands you just don't criticize other racial groups um, and it would go both ways. But this idea that we're gonna divide the world between the privileged and the unprivileged can criticize the privileged and um, can call them out for incredibly petty things such as digital blackface, which is just using a, a white person using a meme with the face of a black person. Um, but you can also have MTV do their um, their uh, non-whites giving New Year's resolutions for white people that are all very insulting, which they did a few years ago. I don't know if this is a regular thing or they just did it once, but I just thought, huh, um, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are noticing that, oh, yeah, I'm white. I'm not allowed to talk that way about other groups, and um, I do not like that I can be, my group can be talked about in this way. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think that it's going to be conducive to societal harmony uh, to have this sort of one-sided criticism. It strikes me that there's some other pernicious thing going on in those cases, which is the idea that whites can take it on the chin because they're adults. Um, that they're not going to take it seriously when you crack jokes about them and uh, when you say derogatory stuff about them. But black people, hey, they're kids. Um, they're not real moral agents. That You better be very careful what you say about them because they might just start sobbing on the floor um, because they're not real agents. They're not uh, fully human being. And I think that's really dangerous. When you say, oh, there's certain things that you shouldn't say around women because they're very fragile, that strikes me as very sexist. But it's okay to say that to a man because he can take it, because he's strong, because he's a grown-up. Um, once you start to have these kinds of rules, you're really just uh, enforcing uh, sexist and racist attitudes in the direction that you don't want to do. Um, and so it seems like it's a self-undermining project. I agree with that. I agree that's a... A real worry, the infantilization. However, um, I do think it is fair to say that it's probably more unfair to whites that they're not allowed to do this. But it, it's just not a criticism that seems even socially acceptable to raise. Um, if you say, "Hey, white people have feelings too," you can you might get accused of like white supremacism or something. So, subjectivity from everybody matters, um, but it's 
John McWhorter, for example, had he had this book, Woke Racism, that emphasizes the infantilization part. And I thought, yeah, that's true. But I think the people being villainized are the primary victims of this. In the same way, I think that it's true that slavery was terrible for the Southern culture, but I don't think Southern white culture was the primary victim of this. Of course, that's a much more egregious example, but it's the same thing. It's yeah, I, I don't know that's the right thing to focus on. Well, Spencer, always an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and we look forward to having you again uh, very soon.